0: Hello, and welcome to Controversies in Church History. My name is Derek Taylor. I am the host of this podcast. And in this episode, we are going back to a series I've done before, Catholic Lives, episode 14, Hugh Ross Williamson. And if you don't know, the Catholic Lives series is just a series of short biographies of interesting and uh, sometimes neglected uh, people in the history of the Catholic Church, people who are not saints but who lived what I thought were good and um, in some ways exemplary lives or otherwise are interesting or important historically. So that's the episode for this, uh, for this time. A couple of things before we get started. <clears throat> if you haven't already, check out the website churchcontroversies.com. I had a new article out last week uh, in Crisis Magazine on social media, yeah, you should try it out, uh, and then uh, you should also uh, you know, check out the Facebook page. Uh, go subscribe if you haven't already uh, to the podcast. You can find it on multiple platforms or on YouTube. Please subscribe on YouTube as well. Some people seem to like listening to it there, so uh, just help get the, spread the word about the podcast and get it growing. We'd really appreciate it. Really thankful for all you listeners. Really appreciate it. it help me trying to do this here try to get some historical knowledge out there for Catholics who uh, who need it and need to know things about the background of the church. But also, in this this series, Catholic Lies, because this is about controversial topics, they're sometimes controversial, sometimes they're sometimes not that pleasant. These are a little more meant to be uh, sometimes inspiring, sometimes to give you a little more uh, confidence about the history of the faith. And so let's begin talking about Hugh Ross Williamson. Who is that? Uh, and... Um, Hugh Ross Williamson was, um, he was actually many things. He was a writer, a journalist, novelist, historian, screenwriter, actor, uh, and also a convert from Anglicanism. Um, so he was born in 1901 uh, in England, but his background, uh, Hugh Ross Williamson, was that, uh, at least on his father's side, was Scottish. <coughs> His grandfather, also named Hugh, uh, had been a missionary who came down from Scotland and moved to England for that purpose, and he had been a member of what is known as a a Free Church. That is to say, is a uh, not the established Kirk of Scotland, not allied with the state church there. And so, Free Church. We're talking about uh, Presbyterianism. If you don't know Protestantism that well, that's a form of church government which has which has instead of having their own Version of bishops, they have elders, uh, you know whatever, a group of elders who decide things effectively. There's a whole hierarchy, but it's different. There's no ordained ministry like there is in the Catholic Church. but uh, his grandfather Hugh was a was a member of this church, came down, had two sons, one of whom his father, who was also named Hugh, was a Presbyterian minister. So he grew up a preacher's kid uh, in uh, in uh, uh, in England. And um, his family on his mother's side was Polish, but in, uh, but he, so he has a particular upbringing, does Hugh Ross Williamson. Uh, he was very well versed in theology from an early age. His father had, you know, again, he was a preacher, so he had theological books at home. He would read them as a child. Uh, in his autobiography called The Walled Garden, written in 1957, he recalls having theological debates and conversations with his father while they were, while they were both shaving uh, in the bathroom together. So that was kind of a nice anecdote there. And uh, and he writes uh, in that uh, work about the peculiarities of being raised a minister's son, which if you don't know, they're not all pleasant. Um, Lots of things that go along with it. In any case, um, uh, he'll come to the Catholic Church via Anglicanism, and by the time he's in high school, when he's 18 years old, he begins to be interested in the Church of England. And he induces his father to go along with him to a Anglican, quote-unquote, sung Eucharist when he's 18 years old. And he's attracted to it, even though he agreed with his father that it sounded pagan to their ears at first. Which, again, if you're a, a Protestant of that sort, a Calvinist, that's what Presbyterian is. It goes back to John Calvin. They have very, um, very staid forms of worship. Uh, suspicious of anything that might distract from hearing the Word of God in the Bible. So, But even though he distrusted it at first, he he found himself attracted to it. So within a few years, I think it was his 18, he was born 1901, this is uh, 1919. By 1924, he was already having leanings toward the Catholic Church and began attending Anglican services. And he would actually begin attending uh, Catholic Masses as well later on. So he has, from an early period... Uh, a sensibility that w- was reaching out for the Eucharist here. Uh, but in 1924, he, he, and this is what I forgot to mention, initially he thought uh, he was going to be a Presbyterian minister like his father, but of course came time to do this and go through the training. He couldn't, he couldn't do it. His father was disappointed, but he respected him for it. Um, just a note about his father. His father seemed to be fairly tolerant of him because he never, there was no... Uh, there was no. He, he became. as We'll see in a moment. He becomes Catholic after he dies. But he knew his leanings. He didn't seem to have any animosity toward him. So he deserves some credit. Does the uh, the father who was the minister? In any case, he he abandons the ministry and becomes a journalist. Uh, first, I can't think. I can't remember the first place he was. But eventually, he makes his way to Yorkshire, which is in the north of England. He's been working as a dramatist there, and then later comes back down to London. He'd be the editor of a series of reviews. The Bookman was one of the more prominent ones in the 1930s. By the 1930s, but he soon became a theater critic. And being a theater critic, he got involved with knowing actors and directors in the theater. He began writing his own plays and started getting some of them performed in the 1920s. The first few were total flops, but as you'll see, Hugh Ross Williamson was a pretty precocious guy. He didn't let that sort of thing slow him down. By the 1930s, he began to have success. Published a trilogy of plays in the 1930s um, was a big success. Later on, 1937, he published a, he, um, his play Gladstone, which is about the 19th century uh, Scottish uh, liberal prime minister uh, William Gladstone, um, was banned as being offensive. It was actually banned by the government. It still had censorship back then in England. And uh, it was banned because it was seen as offensive to Queen Victoria. And it remained so until 20 years afterward. I'm assuming uh, assuming until they, they only got rid of... Uh, of uh, censorship, I think, in 1963, when the book um, Lady Chatterley, Chatterley's Lover, someone challenged the law and got it stricken down by the courts there. But um, for a long time, he had a play banned, uh, and by the way, it, it, it's banned primarily partly because he's 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 not very, again, Queen Victoria had fairly, you know, strict Anglican sensibilities, and he's becoming more and more Catholic. Uh, he also in the 1930s had been a member of the Labor Party in, in Britain, and he got kicked out um, because he wrote a pamphlet in 1938, which s- suggested trade unions shouldn't control the party and advocated getting rid of them. And of course, they were controlled by trade unions. He was immediately asked to leave, which he did. He was actually running for office at one point as a member for parliament as a labour Labour um, uh, member of the Labor Party, and they kicked him out. Uh, in any event, as I said before, he had been attending, right in the 1930s, he had been attending, you know, services of the Church of England, but also uh, masses uh, in Catholic churches. Uh, but by 1941, he felt compelled to go into the Anglican priesthood, uh, and he eventually did take orders in, in the Church of England in 1943. And his reasoning for doing this, again, he says this is an autobiography, is that his he, his real hope was to convert call country back to Christianity. By the 1940s, again, this is the age of, you know, C.S. Lewis and people like that. They already know, Lewis knows, that Christianity as a public force is waning, and so he's hoping, he wants to convert the entire country back to Christianity. He thinks it can only be done through the auspices of the Church of England at that point. Um, although, even though he says in his his um, autobiography that the, his conversion to Rome was a matter of time, uh, in his mind, his conversion was very much a logical thing, and um, His childhood faith, and I'm quoting him here, quote, he says, quote, followed to its logical conclusion, led invariably to the Catholic Church, and unquote. He always kind of knew this was coming, in other words. If you're wondering why he didn't just do it, one reason he was getting into trouble, (laughs) more trouble. Uh, He kept writing plays. Uh, In 1947, he began his his career as a screenwriter. He wrote TV plays, uh, wrote episodes for TV series, and documentaries for uh, the BBC and the uh, ITV. In in Britain, I uh, oh, forgot to mention he's already been publishing in the midst of all this books on a whole host of things, uh, books on history, uh, popular history. He's not an academic historian, but he writes popular books on you know Elizabeth the First. I mean Elizabeth in England, uh, the Gunpowder Plot. Uh, he wrote a book on T. S. Eliot, the poet, in 1932, which was his first book, which was well received. And began writing books for children. In 1953, he published the British Book of Saints, which became a bestseller. And so he did a, a book of Italian saints and uh, and French saints and all this other stuff later on. So he's a prolific, prolific writer. But got himself in trouble in 1953, that same year, when he was invited to write a play for the Canterbury Festival in the city of Canterbury. This is the cathedral, which is still the, um, the center of uh, Church of England in, in England. And the stipulation for entrance in this—he was asked to write a play. It's a, it was a, a very major uh, honor. T.S. Eliot had been asked to write a play. He wrote his play *Murder in the Cathedral* about um, Thomas Becket. Whereas um, um, he was asked to write a play, and it had to be about an Archbishop of Canterbury. Oh, I'm sorry, and so he uh, and so he wrote uh, a play called *His Eminence of England*, which was about Reginald Pole. If you don't know who Reginald Pole was, it was a Catholic cardinal. Who, who, after the Reformation, when you remember you had Henry Eighth in England, gets rid of the church, uh, his, his son Edward comes to the throne, then he dies, and Mary Tudor, who's still Catholic, comes back to the throne and turns the country for five years back to Catholicism. Her major advisor, who was also <laughs> Archbishop of Canterbury, was Reginald Pole. And um, this didn't go over very well with a lot of like, people in Canterbury for obvious reasons. It made a lot of people upset. Didn't get great reviews because of this. So um, so he's involved in controversies in that way. He's also involved in other controversies because he is a member of, I need to explain this because most people probably don't know much enough about the history of the Church of England. He's involved um, because he becomes a, um, an Anglican um, clergyman He is a member uh, of the Anglo-Catholic movement within the Church of England. I need to explain, okay, what does that mean? Okay, because you're a Catholic, like, what is, what's that supposed to mean? Okay, so this is kind of hard. This is, okay, so going back to at least the 19th century, and if you, some people want to go back before, but at least since the 19th century, you'd had people like Cardinal Newman, people who have been in the Church of England who pushed for a return uh, in theological circles to... Um, to the early Church Fathers, to, you know, patristics and stuff like this. And this led a lot of them to take on the trapping sometimes of a Catholic liturgy as they began more and more. Some of them began going more and more towards Catholicism. Uh, Some of them came into the Church in the 19th century, others stayed in, and there was continually a movement which, again, you can divide it into, you know, um you know, high church and low church and and different brand I won't go into all that stuff but there's there's different theological factions in the Church of England to this day the Anglo-catholics because there are there are people who call themselves high church who like some of the the external ceremonies that are associated with Catholicism they're not as they're not as on board with the actual some of the doctrines Pope, you know, sacrifice of the mass. The Anglo-Catholics, and again, you can get more minute in this. Some of them were literally Anglo-Papalists. Uh, that's another term that's been thrown up by people like Euros Williamson. They wanted a reunion with Rome, and he's part of that group. There's a series of parishes in England, particularly in London, where he's at, which are really uh, they're pushing for a Catholic interpretation of everything in the church. I mean, they want to. They want their goal is to take over the Church of England and turn it back to Catholicism. Um, this doesn't work because it's a tiny movement in the Church of England. Uh, in the 1930s, for example, I'll give you an example of what they had. In the 1930s in, in England, some of these Anglo-Catholic parishes would actually have benediction, and they would reserve the Blessed Sacrament on the altar, or I don't know what they call the altar. And um, there were 170 of these priests in the 1930s, and so when the bishop ordered to stop them, most of them did. 21 refused. And it's to one of those churches, that he actually went, Williamson did, when he became a minister in the Church of England. Um, and these Anglo-Catholic churches used the Roman canon in their liturgy. The Roman canon is the prayer, the prayer of, um, the Eucharistic prayer, uh, in the old Roman rite. you almost never hear it in the new rite. I'll get to that in a second. But um, Although eventually, in the 1950s, the Bishop of London would forbid this too. And in fact, he gets into, you know, he's in middle of all this He publishes a book when he's still in England, 1954, called The Great Prayer, which is on the Roman canon, and which, again, indicates kind of where he's going. And in fact, by this time, his daughter mentions, Julia, um, uh, who's still alive, mentions that he was influenced by, you know, G.K. Chesterton, um, um, L.R. Belloc, uh, T.S. Eliot, um, Dorothy Sayers, and his growing conviction of the Church, but it was also the waning influence of this movement he was a part of in the church of england which pushed him toward rome because in 1955 uh, then they had pushed him over into the into into the catholic church was some years before there had been a a union of four church of england dioceses diocese in india with several dissenting several other protestant churches methodist i think lutheran i think presbyterian in other words with these more you know Calvinist tinish churches into something called the Church of South India where they all agreed to share communion share sacraments stuff like this and of course be him being an Anglo-Catholic he could not believe it, he could not accept this so when that was made final in 1955 uh, he resigns from the Church of England and enters the church uh, at some personal cost at the time according to his daughter his only source of income uh, was from uh, working for the BBC uh, he was actually a bo- member of a, a board that was part of BBC. And when he uh crossed the Tiber, he was asked to resign, uh, which he did. So he lost his job because of it. Um, nevertheless, uh he never regretted it. And he you can see a man of his talents made <laughs> uh made made out just fine, actually. Um, but he stated in his autobiography that he had been uh can we wrote his autobiography, it was only like 15, 1957, it was published. Uh, he said in his autobiography quote he had been a catholic less than six months and already it is difficult to understand why i did not submit 38 years ago unquote so he came in and was a natural catholic and he became uh, a prominent catholic apologist he continued to write plays biographies histories uh even as he continued to write for for the theater and for television um the actor jack hawkins jack hawkins was a fairly famous actor if you remember i think jack hawkins was the gentleman if you can remember the film ben hur he plays the roman the roman senator who adopts uh charlton heston's character the judah ben hur uh that's jack hawkins uh he was supposed to star in a play he'd written about saint bernadette of 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 lords but hawkins got sick and had to pull out of it so at the last minute um uh, Hugh Ross Williamson had to step in and start acting, which he did He <laughs> under a, 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 a pseudonym, Ian Rossiter. So he begins acting in his in his post-Anglican life as well. So again, a man of many talents. But one of the reasons why I'm doing this episode, and one of the things he's most known for now, he's known at all, is that toward the end of his life, um, of course, the Second Vatican Council happened, and the uh, of course you had the creation of the new liturgy, and his last year of his life were in addition to still writing a bunch of things, he was occupied by his opposition to the new liturgical reforms. And it's worth mentioning. I mentioned this in the my uh, series on the traditionalist movement, and I forgot to. One of the reasons I'm doing this episode is I forgot to mention Hugh Ross Williamson in that 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 uh, that series. Shame on me, but. There were many English literary luminaries, um, several of whom were converts, who were distressed at these changes. People like Evelyn Waugh, J.R. R. Tolkien didn't like it. Christopher Dawson, who I forgot to mention altogether in the traditionalist, he wasn't a traditionalist, but um, a great historian, former Anglican, hated them. David Jones, a Welsh poet, very highly regarded modernist poet, converted, also a, a painter, Um, again, mostly these artist types who understood and appreciated the liturgy, hated the changes. Uh, Alec Guinness, Obi-Wan Kenobi, that's right, he was an Anglican and became Catholic. Um, He came to dislike intensely the new new right. Graham Greene, Graham Greene, not your traditional Catholic at all. Kind of a commie, actually, but he didn't like them. Uh, And uh, a novelist named Antonia White at the time wrote against us. Many others, actually. But none of them wrote against it quite like Hugh Ross Williamson, and partly because you know, again, even though he wasn't a professional historian per se, his knowledge because of course he grew up with theology, because he did write histories, even though if they weren't you know academic um, scholarly histories, because he it was, it was you know his understanding of the mass in, in terms of the drama, he's a dramatist and everything. He understood, but especially of course because his training in the Church of England, he understood some of the problems with the New Liturgy. And in two pamphlets, um, one published in 1969 called The Modern Mass, the subtitle of which is a Reversion to the Reforms of Kramer. We'll get to that in a second. And then in 1970 The Great Betrayal, he laid out the case that the Reforms were effectively following the path of the Protestant Reformers. And um, one of the reasons he says this, um, he talks about all the—he goes into, in his book, The Modern Mass, you have, you know, all these things that are kind of going on in the—in um, uh, uh, in England, which look like what happened during the Reformation. Uh, just to give you a couple of different things, when they got rid of the Mass in the 1540s in England, in the English Reformation, two of the things they did was there were, you know— um, um, they didn't have any use for altars, so in 1550, uh, Cranmer got uh, the Privy Council of England to issue an edict. That all the altars throughout the kingdom should be destroyed. Uh, of course, think of what happened after the Second Vatican Council. A lot of altars literally were destroyed. Lots of them. Uh, another thing he mentioned that I thought was actually very insightful, he also mentions that I'd forgotten about this, I knew this. Um, there were... Um, uh, many, actually, um, liturgical and devotional instruction books in the late Middle Ages for people in England, like in English, right, to explain the faith, and the idea that, you know, Catholics were sort of totally ignorant. Again, some were, obviously, of uh, what was going on in the Mass before the Reformation. is not true. We know this because, again, um, the, um, the English monarchy destroyed something, according to a uh, so Hugh Ross Williamson, some, somewhere near a quarter of a million of these books <laughs> uh, as a result of the Reformation. In other words, they destroyed knowledge of the old faith this way to try to wipe it out. And again, they didn't do this in the liturgical reforms, but they might as well have, because everything, they created this whole new set of books, and of course a whole new set of, you know, divi- uh, um, you know, a whole new you know, generation of books explaining the new Mass came into effect, and everything else was basically thrown out. You can still find older books, but it effectively erased them. So he thought, "Hey, this is this looks like this this same process here." But it's more than that. Actually, um, he makes some uh, um, quite interesting parallels to what they're doing in both of these um, both of these reforms. And one of the things he was worried about, and one of the things that basically every critic of the new liturgy pointed out, was they were making a lot of changes. To the Eucharistic prayer, well, not just the, all the prayers actually, but he was most concerned, of course, with the Roman Canon. Because he wrote a whole book on it, and he knew that. Uh, and why is the Roman Canon important? Roman Canon is important because it's a, it's the embodiment of the earliest traditions of Christian worship coming out of Rome. Right? Rome is a Rome is a, a the city where uh, Saint Peter and Saint Paul died, by tradition. It's the earliest written-down expression of, of of how Christians worshipped before the 4th century. It goes back to like the 360s, 380s, something like that. It's that old uh, Roman canon. But of course, it's connected to the apostolic tradition as it came down um, from those apostles. And of course, the Reformers back in the Reformation wanted to get rid of it. And what happens, of course, with the new liturgy, if you don't know, is that uh, a bunch of alternative... Uh, canons, or actually or alternative Eucharistic prayers are created. And in fact, the, um, the body that creates the new liturgy called the Concilium, it's the, basically the commission for creating this new liturgy in, in English terms, um, issues an instruction saying that, this, that uh, these new prayers, one of these new prayers, it's called Eucharistic Prayer Two, should be the normative prayer, displacing the older canon which again, one of the complaints people had about the mass, new mass, was it? It, it sort of, you know, um, dulls the language of sacrifice, and this is one of the criticisms he makes really early on. Here, he also makes several criticisms. Um, going back to um, uh, going back to um, um, the 18th. Excuse me. Go, go, um, going back to in terms of. You know how these things, he doesn't drill this out a lot, but how this uh, new mass got sort of uh, imposed on the whole church. And he criticizes uh, the Vatican and the bishops, the bishops of England and Wales. Um, in the, uh, the Great Betrayal, uh, the modern mass is the one he sort of lays out the connections. Both of the works lay out the connections with the reformers. But in The Great Betrayal, he talks about, this. I'm quoting him here, he says, the Vatican as well as the English and Welsh bishops seem to have been presuming on a combination of theological theological ignorance and blind obedience to get the new, new Mass accepted without argument. Unquote. And I think that's probably true. They basically just wanted people to accept this without asking any questions about it, about why it was rushed through, why it looks so much like a Protestant liturgy, those sorts of things. And the point of all this is that Hugh... Hugh Ross Williamson is one of the first people to raise these questions. Uh, He'll do this, um, uh, he'll talk about this in several places, that this is an abuse of obedience. You can't just demand people to sort of give up their faith like this without question. Um, Again, and I say that, that unfortunately has been the habit for a long time for a lot of Catholics. And you just took on you know, without question because you you know you could trust rome you could trust authorities of course we're living through a crisis today where i don't think anybody trusts rome anymore so uh, a little more uh, maybe there'll be a little more um a second look at someone like hugh ross williamson because for a long time even suggesting that made him kind of a pariah but uh, it seems to be that was the way this was actually done um to so sort of shove these things down people's throats but he also makes other points that are i think really crucial because, okay, if you're accusing you know people that made the Mass of having all these Protestant-looking elements in the New Mass, where does that come from? And again, he's one of the first people, not, well, not one of the first people to point this out, but he's uh, he points out what I think is the real issue here, is he talks about ecumenism. Uh, and he's talking about, and, and some of the people who actually worked on uh, the New Liturgy talked about, they wanted reunion with Protestants. And so they wanted to make the New Mass as acceptable to them as possible, and so they tried to you know, tone down or cut out anything that suggested things that might offend Protestants. And, um, which I think is pretty clearly the case. Um, if you've listened to my little talk I gave on the uh, church between World War II and, and Vatican II, you know, in Europe, continental Europe, after World War II, there was this real, there was a real rapprochement between Catholics and Protestants to, you know, they went across the aisle. They had not been, they'd been very, you know, divided for centuries. Well, after World War II, in the wake of that destruction in Germany, in, you know, France, in other places, the Netherlands, you had them working together, uh, in politically speaking, in Christian democratic parties all across Europe. So there's this new feeling of, oh, we have these new Protestant friends now. We want to make the faith more attractive to them. And a lot of people took it in some really bad ways. And um, you don't have to, by the way, see this as, as some sort of plot or conspiracy If you've seen, if you haven't watched, it's on YouTube now. The Mass of the Ages, the new film they've been making about the Latin Mass, and the second episode is really good. It goes through all the all the changes that were made uh, to the liturgy in the '60s. One thing I didn't like that they did is they brought in Freemasonry. (laughs) Um, Again, that's a yeah. It's not necessary to assume, which a lot of people had a lot of bad ideas. And then use their influence to to really it was really heavy handed the way this way the way the new liturgy was created and imposed on the church um, was as bad as almost as bad as some of the theological problems with the new missile. But in any case, uh, the point of all this is that he even though he kind of again he I think he goes too far in certain places he actually comes out and says that the new mass is invalid um, the not the not the actual Latin missile but the uh, the vernacular uh, masses. Why does he say that? You probably don't remember this because it's been decided now, but again, when the first vernacular translations of the New Latin Missal, the Novus Ordo, came out, they translated the words in the Eucharistic Prayer where, you know, it says, Christ shed his blood for many. That's what it says in the Latin. Well, people were translating that into the vernacular as, for all. Again, indicating that, again, they were, it, it was undermining the uniqueness uh, of the faith, the idea that the faith, this is the true faith, the true Church. And so uh, eventually, the the, the uh, Vatican ordered new translations to get that out of there, which they did in the two thousands, the aughts. But at the time, it was still there, and so Wilson uh, Williamson thought it was uh, thought it was invalid. I, I don't think that's totally true. He went too far in a few places, but a lot of his criticisms, I think, have been validated since then. It's still a minority position, but it shouldn't be. People should be open to at least hearing out people like Hugh Ross Williamson because he was an intelligent guy, even though. Again, um, to to wrap all this up, he was not, you know... um, Yeah, I mean, he was not a a scholarly historian, so he didn't get nobody in the theological world the Catholic church took him seriously. But uh, he was important for the Latin mass movement. He became one of the founders of the Latin Mass Society of the UK, which is the oldest of all the Latin mass societies in the world. Um, And he, you know, and this is something that even Annabelle Bonini the secretary to the Concilium, who's sort of the arch enemy of all, of all Latin Rite people and all traditionalists, understood that, and he actually mentioned this in a letter, that one of the reasons why the changes are so hard for English Catholics to accept is English Catholics have been a persecuted minority. Um, many Englishmen like Williamson thought of the, 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 the displacing of the Old Mass as a betrayal of all the English men and women who had been martyred to keep the faith alive during the penal times. The penal times is when you know they were under persecution. And this was a real hard thing for him. This is why, in some ways, well, well to wrap this up, I mean, uh, well, I'll get this in a second, but that's it's why it was such an intense thing for him and so many others. And uh, Ross Williamson kept writing books to the end of his life, histories, and other things, but while he was writing his pamphlets against the liturgical form complications from a disease he had contracted as a child, um, caused him to have his leg amputated. And so he remained, for the last eight years of his life, till 1978, confined to his home for the last eight years of his life. Uh, and Hugh Ross Williamson never attended the new Mass. Uh, so great was his opposition to it. Uh, and he passed away in 1978. And his legacy deserves to be remembered, in my opinion. Again, you know I'm sympathetic to the traditionalist movement. And to this day, aside from France and America, which is kind of the heart of it, um, no sort of Latin mass traditionalist community is stronger than the one probably in Britain than anywhere else. And it owes this partly to its early leadership, men like Hugh Ross Williamson, but also uh, Michael Davies was another, again, I mentioned him in the the, uh, series on traditionalism, Uh, convert, Welshman, uh, the Baptist who became Catholic. And they undertook to defend, you know, the church's, you know, ancient worship, uh, right of worship as worthy of love and veneration when nobody else would. And what I admire about both of these men is that neither one of them were scholars. They had to make do with what they could to sort of make arguments for doing this. Uh, And so they had a little influence, but their thoughts, uh, their, excuse me, their works are both thoughtful and serious. You should read Michael Davies. If you're just getting into this and you listen to this, you're like, oh, this is traditionalist stuff. It sounds weird. I get it. Totally get it. Uh, I deeply admire Michael Davies and Hugh Ross Williamson. And Michael Davies, I think, took some took where uh, his pamphlets left. And but those two pamphlets, they're tiny, they're short. They're both thirty pages apiece. You can read those in one sitting. Michael Davies wrote a three volume work on this big thick book. So maybe start with you, Ross Williamson. But they provided those people who loved the old mass with a rationale for why it deserved not to be destroyed. And in addition to calling attention to problems with the reforms. And yes, I know traditionalists can sometimes be again, this is one thing is if you're coming from the outside. You may see traditionalists being way too critical of the new mass. First of all, there are a lot of things, uh, having, having looked at it closely myself, trust me, it'll, there are a lot of things, have problems with the new, right. But, um, they make a lot of arguments for why it's lovely and worthy of federation and no harm or threat or anything to anybody who goes to the new mass. um, and I think I think their are their their well, <laughs> their arguments did get people like Michael Davies and Hugh Ross Williamson. They were vindicated by Joseph Ratzinger, and um, I think in the long run they will be vindicated by the whole church. But that's neither here nor there right now. But I'll end by saying this: If you love the old Mass, if you attend it, or you're just sympathetic with it uh, in your prayers, please say a prayer for the soul of Hugh Ross Williamson, son of a Presbyterian minister. Anglican priest, founding father of the Latin Mass movement, and defender of the faith. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. All right, so if you like this, please, you know, again, let somebody know. Let one person know. Like, in passing, I don't say, I'm not asking you to be an evangelist, but say, hey, somebody who's thoughtful and and, and wants to know more about the faith and maybe about this or that thing tell them to go check out the podcast and you maybe if you like it subscribe if you like this go subscribe to it um i should mention this i, I had i, I had uh, had an ad post on on facebook and somebody could be asking this this is a free podcast <laughs> no pay you will not have to pay anything for this so do, go like and subscribe go click the like button on on youtube click the bell so you get you know alerted to my new episodes and um yeah, be on the lookout for new episodes. We'll have another Catholic Lives episode coming up soon. Uh, interesting one uh, on the life of Orestes Brownson. If you don't know who that name is, an American convert, 19th century, kind of. It's not totally accurate. You could call him a sort of American Newman, John Henry Newman. Uh, so that'll be coming up. Uh, another couple of standalone episodes, a, a special episode I've been hinting at. We'll get to eventually as well. So, lots of stuff. Um, please be on the lookout for that. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope this was helpful for you guys. Um, keep the faith. Keep praying. Keep loving God and living in the light of Christ. God bless you all. Take care.